0: Open up your Bibles to Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Let me just pray for us as we prepare to get started here. Heavenly Father, again, we just give you thanks for this glorious day that you have given to us that we might come together to worship you. Thank you, Father God, for The opportunity we've already had to lift our voices in praise and worship, to lift our hearts in prayer. And now, Father God, we pray that you would speak to us from your word. Open our hearts and our minds to receive from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Slaves or saints, which are you? both. Amen. Today we begin an expositional study of Paul's letter to the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter while he is under house arrest in Rome around 62 AD. So approximately 30 years after the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is not alone as he writes this letter. He is, in fact, chained to a Roman soldier, one of his guards during his imprisonment, where he is awaiting trial before Caesar. He also has Timothy and Epaphroditus there visiting with him. Timothy, we know, was Paul's son in the faith and partner, In ministry, Epaphroditus had been sent by the church in Philippi with a financial gift for Paul and to minister to him. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians to thank them for their continued support and to encourage them not to lose hope but to remain joyful regardless of their circumstances or his circumstances, just as he has remained joyful. For the source of their joy is not in their circumstances, but in Christ, their Savior and their Lord." Now last month, I preached a sermon which was an introduction and an overview of this joyful letter written by Paul out of love and appreciation for his spiritual children and grandchildren in Philippi. In that introduction, I told you three things about this letter. First, it is a joy-filled letter. All through this letter, Paul speaks of the spiritual joy that leads to rejoicing. In fact, he mentions joy or rejoicing 16 times in these four chapters. Second, it's a doctrine-filled letter. It contains great doctrinal truths, but in summary form, as we will begin to see today. It contains concise teachings on important topics topics for our Christian lives. Thus, we will see that this letter contains many well-known and beloved verses. Third, and most important of all, it is a Christ-filled letter. The name of Christ, or Jesus Christ, appears 17 times in the first chapter alone. Three times in the first two verses, and over 40 times in this short letter. We could say that it is a letter about Christ who he is, what he has done, who we are in Christ, and what we are to do in living for him. We will see that knowing Christ and living for him, not for ourselves, or for the things of this world, is the key to having spiritual joy in our lives and to having a spiritual impact upon this world for Christ and for His kingdom. Today, we will start by looking at the opening verses of this letter that identify the author and the recipients of this letter and reveal some amazing spiritual truths. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of our text, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May our Lord bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. What do you hear in these opening lines of this precious letter? It would be a mistake to think that this is just a standard introduction and greeting. It is true that Paul's letters open in a similar fashion and follow the basic format that was so common in his day. But, as similar as they seem, each of Paul's letter openings actually introduce key themes to be developed in the rest of the letter. In these opening verses... Paul presents himself and Timothy as men who have found joy in becoming slaves for Christ. And he introduces the profound truth that all of us who are in Christ are also saints or holy ones. And that these truths result in grace and peace Two things that we so desperately need in our lives today. And Paul makes these points by mentioning one name three times in these two verses. Slaves of Christ Jesus, saints in Christ Jesus, grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. These three phrases begin to unlock the mystery of how Paul could find peace and joy in being captive as a slave for Christ and how we can experience that same peace and joy in our lives. We start by looking at this phrase, slaves of Christ Jesus. Okay, you might be thinking, wait a minute, my Bible says servant or bond servant, and you would be correct, but that is a mistranslation of the original Greek text. The original Greek text uses the word doulos, which can only mean slave one owned by another. There are six words in the Greek that can mean servant. This is not one of them. John MacArthur, in his excellent book entitled Slave, reminds us that Scripture's prevailing description of the Christian's relationship to Jesus Christ is a slave-master relationship. Let me say that again. Scripture's prevailing description of the Christian's relationship to Jesus Christ is a slave-master relationship. But if you do a casual read through an English New Testament, you will not see this. He goes on to write this, quote, The reason for this is as simple as it is shocking. The Greek word for slave has been hidden by being mistranslated in almost every English version, starting with the King James version. Though the word slave, doulos in Greek, occurs 124 times in the Greek text of the New Testament, it is correctly translated only once in the King James. Most of our modern English translations do only slightly better Instead, they most often translate it as servant or bondservant. Close quote. While it is true that the duties of a slave and servant may overlap to some degree, there is a key distinction between the two. Servants are hired, slaves are owned. Slaves have no freedom no autonomy, no rights. They are considered to be the property of their owners bound to obey their will no matter what. And it was the same way in Paul's day, if not more so. Why did the English translators fail to translate this word properly? Because of the stigma surrounding slavery at the time of the King James translation. And subsequent translators simply stayed with that model. But here, Paul is communicating to us a hard but profound truth. The gospel is not simply an invitation to become a follower of Christ. It is a mandate to become his slave. That is exactly how Paul saw himself and Timothy as slaves of Jesus Christ, bought and paid for by the one who himself became a slave in order to free them from their slavery to sin by paying the redemption price for them. In Philippians chapter 2, we will see that Paul describes. Jesus Christ as having become a slave now at that time when Paul is writing this there were three ways a person could become a slave first by conquest by an opposing empire or army which would then enslave their captives second by being born a slave children born to slaves were considered to also be slaves owned by the same master. Third, and very common, a person could become a slave due to a debt. Becoming a slave in order to pay off a debt owed. Or, as commonly occurred, selling one of your children into slavery to pay off the debt that you owe. It is striking that the Bible teaches that all people have become slaves to sin in these same three ways. First, we are born as slaves to sin. As David writes in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Second, Scripture tells us that we are slaves of sin by conquest. Sin rules over us so that we cannot do the things we would like to do. Third, we are slaves to sin by debt. Paul writes that the wages of sin are death, telling us that this debt can only be paid by a death. Now, Paul knew that he had been a slave to sin in this same manner, and every person must realize the same thing that they are slaves to sin, slaves to self, slaves to Satan. They must come to realize that so that they will then call out to Jesus Christ to rescue them from their bondage, from their slavery. Only Jesus can set us free from our slavery to sin. Only Jesus can set us free by His paying the redemption price for us to redeem us out of our slavery to sin by paying the debt we owe, the debt we cannot pay. But in doing so, He purchases us to become His. He pays the price for us to become His slaves. Paul and Timothy are examples to us of this profound biblical truth. Those whom Christ saves, he enslaves. Those who Christ saves, he enslaves. Now I know how that sounds. I know. Because the first time I came to realize this, it sounded that way to me as well. This doesn't sound right. But that's because all the way back to the garden, human beings do not want a lord and master. As human beings, we want to be in control of our own lives. We want to be the master of our own ship. The captain of our fate. But we are not. Jesus made it clear. We all serve one master or another. And so Paul and Timothy had been freed from slavery to sin, to self, to Satan. To become slaves of the true and living God. They had been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus. And we have as well if we've trusted in Him for our salvation, therefore, we are now to glorify God in our bodies and in our lives, for we belong to Him. Amen? That is why we call Him Lord, or Master, or King. But we're not just subjects of the King. We are His Slaves. But wait, there is more. Not only are we slaves of Christ, we are also saints in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, here Paul declares, That we are not only slaves of Christ Jesus, but we are also saints in Christ Jesus. The word for saint here in the Greek, hagios, which is a derivative of the word hagios, meaning set apart or holy. These words represent those persons or things that have been set apart for God's holy purposes. In every case, in the New Testament, this is referring to those who are redeemed by Christ, followers of Christ, not those who are perfect, but those who are redeemed by Christ. And because they are in Christ, they are credited with His righteousness. We don't do works or deeds to become saints as is taught by the Roman Catholic Church. We become saints in the sight of God by trusting in His Son for our salvation. Scripture tells us that all who are Christians, without exception, have been set apart by God for His purpose. We are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Note ownership there. Saints belonging to God. If you are a Christian, then you are a saint set apart by God to serve Him. All believers are saints, not because they are themselves righteous or sinless, but because they are counted as righteous or sinless by being credited with the righteousness of Christ. Paul applies this special title of privilege and honor to a congregation in Philippi that was composed of all sorts of people from diverse ethnic and religious backgrounds. Since the Jewish community in Philippi was so small, most of the saints that he is referring to must have been Gentiles like us and were probably raised in pagan religions. We know a few of the members of this church in Philippi. Lydia was a successful merchant. She is described in Acts as a God-fearer or a Gentile worshiper of God. God God-fearers were Gentiles who embraced the Jewish belief in the God of the Old Testament and tried to live according to the commandments of God, but did not go all the way converting to Judaism. Then there was the slave girl who had the demon cast out of her by Paul. And the Roman jailer and his family, whom no one would have called a saint prior to their conversion. But now Paul applies this glorious title of saint to all of them. How is this possible? How can we be considered holy in the sight of God? Well, Paul tells us it is because we are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, in him or in the Lord, 20 times in this letter. Driving home the point that being in Christ is Paul's way of expressing the truth that all who trust in Christ for salvation are united with Him and united with His perfect obedience, united with His death for sin and His resurrection to righteousness and to glory, such that His death upon the cross becomes our death to sin, and it breaks the dominion of sin in our lives. His resurrection declares our righteousness, standing before God, And it ushers us into a new life of freedom to love God, to worship God, and to enter into his very presence as saints clothed with Christ, covered in Christ. So that when God sees me, he sees his son, his son's righteousness. How amazing is that? Amen? That little word, in, is the source of our holiness before God. It tells us that God has united us to His Son, and thus we share in all that Christ has accomplished, including, according to the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 6. Being in Christ and therefore acceptable before God is a source of peace and joy for us. Amen? And Paul applies these truths to all who are members of the church in Philippi. Note that. It includes the overseers or elders and the deacons. The elders and the deacons are also slaves of Christ and saints in Christ. They have been raised up by God to lead the church, protect the church, feed the church, and care for the needs of the church. God has placed those saints under their care. This is one of the most powerful arguments for church membership. It is through membership that we declare ourselves to be under the oversight of the elders and identify ourselves as those that they are responsible to care for. And we see this over and over again in scripture. The writer to the Hebrews succinctly states this relationship in two verses, Hebrews 13, 7 and Hebrews 13, 17. Let me read those to you. In Hebrews 13, 7, we read this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We are to remember those that God has placed over us. We are to listen to them as they speak the word of God and we are to follow their example. And note here, he's referring to your leaders implying submission to the leadership of the local church. Then in verse 17, it becomes even more clear. In Hebrews thirteen seventeen, he writes, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. This is a passage that any of you that have been in our getting to know CFF membership class. I always explain what this passage says to me as an elder of this church. It says to me that I have a responsibility to keep watch over the souls of all who have become members here. And not only that, but myself, Elder Don Strand, and Elder Eric, we will have to give an account for how we have shepherded those souls entrusted to us. Who do you think we have to give an account to? to our Lord, to our Master. Yes. And so it's really important for us to know who are those souls that I'm going to have to give an account for. Elders are to understand that they too are slaves of Christ. They have been given the responsibility to oversee the souls of those whom Christ has placed under them. They are then to watch over them as they obey and submit to those that God has placed over them. It is to be a relationship of partnering together for the unity of the church, for the glory of God. And so we are called to live together and to work together and to worship together as saints in Christ Jesus. Paul finishes these opening verses by proclaiming a blessing upon the recipients of the letter with these words, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace and true peace are both ours as a gift from God. Grace here speaks of God's unmerited favor towards those he loves. It is unmerited meaning unearned and undeserved. Let us never forget that. God bestows his grace upon those he chooses according to his own sovereign will. The Apostle Paul states that very clearly in Romans chapter 9. He quotes, God as saying, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Paul speaks here of the grace by which the saints in Philippi came to be saved. The amazing grace that caused them to put their faith in Christ for their salvation. Just as he wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We are saved by grace, justified by grace, made saints by grace, sanctified by grace, transformed into the image of Christ by grace. And the result is? We have peace with God. By grace, we receive the peace of God. Which Paul is going to describe to us later in this letter in Philippians 4, 7. Being a peace that surpasses all understanding. And that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but over the last five years or so, there have been a lot of reasons for me not to have peace in this life, in this community, in this state, in this nation, in this world. The last time I had a mustache It was brown. (laughs) What happened? Well, let's see. Fires. Pandemics. Wars and rumors of wars. And we could go on with the list, couldn't we? All kinds of reasons... Surround us for us not to have peace. Oh, and then just go online. Okay, you want to not have peace, watch the news. Spend time on social media. There's all kinds of reasons for us not to have peace in this world. But Paul Chained to a Roman soldier, awaiting his possible execution, has perfect peace. How is that possible? Can you and I experience that per- perfect peace? Yes, we can. Because that peace comes from understanding who we are. And who we serve. Amen? Amen? Who we are, we are children of the Most High God, saved by His grace, adopted into His family, clothed in the righteousness of His Son. We are His. And He is the God who is in absolute and total control of all things. And we know this because He has revealed it to us. Of the billions of people on this planet, we, by His grace, have come to know who He is and who we are in Christ. So that we need not fear But instead, we can have a peace that passes all human understanding and it will guard our hearts and guard our minds so that we will not lose it like so many around us are. If we will keep our minds stayed on him. And we will hide his word in our heart. This is true peace. This is a peace that does not depend on our circumstances but it is rooted in God's gracious love for us and our confidence in his love and in his sovereign power and authority. God's grace and peace were a source of great joy for Paul and Timothy and they wished that same Joy for the saints in Philippi and for all who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. One last observance from our text. Note that Paul states that the source of true grace and peace is both God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here that Paul places the Son in the same place as the Father. And that is because the Son and the Father are one. They are one in essence. They are one in being. They are one in power. They are one in authority. And they are one with the Holy Spirit as well. Amen? The Spirit of God, who dwells in each one of His saints, becomes for us the source of divine grace, peace, and joy. As saints of the Most High God, we are blessed beyond measure. Amen? We have so much to be thankful for. And as we continue to study this letter, this letter written by the Holy Spirit through the hand of the Apostle Paul, let us remember That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that we might live as slaves of Christ and as saints in Christ. Reflecting His grace and His peace to all of those around us. To the praise of His glory. Amen? Let us pray.